Um, okay. <laughs> All right. All right. We have to be serious now. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the Geek and Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. Well, Marlene, we have another exciting episode today where we're bringing in some experts to discuss a recent U.S. Supreme Court decision, and we get pretty geeky on some of the reasoning behind the split amongst the uh, normal conservative uh, justices. Actually, we had a pretty good time on this on this podcast, and we had some some really good substantive discussion, and you know, there was a little bit of silly there too. So, oh, yeah. you know, it 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 worked out just nicely. We asked Northwestern University law professor Andrew Koppelman and Jackson Walker labor and employment attorney Sarah Harris to break down the Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia decision that extends the 1964 Civil Rights Act protection to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender workers. Yeah, it was a great discussion and a, and a major victory for the LGBTQ plus community. It so, was. Yeah. But before we jump into the big discussion, let's get back to our information inspirations all right i'll go first marlene you may have heard that uh, after three months i have finally decided to wrap up my side project podcast in seclusion this week great podcast great podcast thanks Um, we're sorry we're sorry to see you go yeah well i have to tell you what i thought would be a 15 or 20 episode podcast ballooned into nearly 70 episodes by the time it was finished. And really, I had so many wonderful discussions with a diverse group of legal professionals over the past three months. But, you know, I I felt like it was a good time to end that project and get back to working on, uh, you know, Three Geeks and the Geek and Review podcast. Oh, yeah, my my day job, too. I guess I should uh, focus on that that as well. So you may find this surprising, but, you know, there... There's a ton of legal podcasts out there that, that will more than fill the uh, void of what uh, In Seclusion will leave behind at the end of the month. So I thought I would just suggest a couple. Um, first, uh, Mike Whalen, who was a guest on the In Seclusion yes. pod, uh, has started his own podcast called Lawyer Forward. It's got a storytelling format where he wraps up a legal historical topic and with a contemporary issue. So the latest one's really interesting. It's about Clarence Darrow's uh, last case, which uh, he defended a bunch of racists in Hawaii. It was kind of weird for him. But, you know, and Mike talks about what that means for a lawyer's reputation to take on these types of controversial cases. So That sounds interesting. It, it, was. it was. If you haven't listened to it yet. I, uh, I'm going to go listen to it. So Mike's got a great voice and, uh, and you know, better than mine and the storytelling's better than mine. So uh, go check them out. The other one that I wanted to point out is it's not a new one, but it's one that I've liked. It's hosted by a couple of lawyers out of Seattle who talk about running their law firm and how being married to each other makes that both interesting and challenging. Oh, boy. Yeah. So the the Lawyer Human Show podcast, again, it's not new, but it's... Wait, lawyers uh, lawyers are human? Well, it's it's a catchy (laughs) title, at least. It is. Uh, 
Um, sucked, it's, it sucked me in just now. <laughs> but it's not it's not new, but it does have, uh, or it's recently been produced by Ben Ambrogi's uh, new podcast company, Populous Radio. And mm-hmm. Ben, of course, is the son of Bob Ambrogi, who I think everyone knows. Um, Colin Lay and Shreya Lay are the two hosts on the show, and they are fun to listen to. It's not a heavy show at all, and they have lots of guests who come in and discuss how to work and live with your business partners. And while it specifically talks about you know spouses as business partners, it really, I think it has a lot to offer in just general personal relationships as well. So go check it out. Yeah, you know, when you were talking about that, and I was thinking the same thing, because, uh, you know, personal relationships do have an element of of business to them. Yeah. So I would think this would be good for everybody's relationship, mm-hmm. <laughs> particularly in COVID when everybody's together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, relationships are tight right now. <laughs> tight. <laughs> <laughs> well, my inspiration has to do with sustainable software. No, that doesn't mean that it lasts longer between upgrades, Greg. (laughs) Too bad. (laughs) It uses less energy and therefore less CO2. Okay. So let me give you an example. A Dutch programmer, Danny Von Kooten, designs a plugin for websites that help users use MailChimp, which for anyone who's not aware is a mail list service. I I bet everyone has gotten a MailChimp email. I would think so, but just in case. (laughs) So each time someone visits your site, the site is made slightly larger from that plugin by adding more code. So imagine the 2 million sites that use this plugin using that plugin and people visiting those sites every day. That's a lot. Uh, So Van Kooten went back and he did a redesign. So he reduced the code creep by about 20 kilobytes of visit. Now that's not a ton, but Van Kooten estimates that over all of the websites that use it, he saved roughly the amount of energy required to fly from New York to Amsterdam and back about 85 times. Wow. That's a lot. Well, I I will tell you this. My first computer was a VIC-20, and I think it had 4 or 8K of -hmm. memory. Yeah. So, of course, I won't tell you what year that was. No. I wouldn't (laughs) know what year that was. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't have to be a programmer to reduce your energy footprint either. So all those emails, you know, thanks or got it that, you know, we all send out. If we cut those out, you could save a ton more energy. Hmm. And I like this article because, you know, you referenced your old computer. It's like there's some of us from certain generations and I will include myself in that. You don't really think about the sustainability concerning our computer use. Um, other than maybe saving paper, you know, and this was a really nice wake up call about how we can do things, you know, at an individual level to contribute to reduce our carbon footprint. And that wraps up this week's Information Inspirations. Well, Marlene, I am very excited to have a couple of outstanding guests on this week's discussion of the Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia case. Andrew Koppelman is the John Paul Stevens Professor of Law at Northwestern University, as well as the author of Gay Rights Versus Religious Liberty, The Unnecessary Conflict, which came out earlier this month. Sarah Harris is a Labor and Employment and Litigation Associate at Jackson Walker and is a member of the Young Lawyers Editorial Board for The American Lawyer.
very happy to be joined here today by Andy Koppelman and Sarah Harris. So uh, both of you, welcome to the Deacon Review. Very happy to be here. Good to be here. Thanks for both of you for coming on the show. We're really excited to dive into this case. And I'm guessing that we're going to get a bit nerdy on some of the details about the decision and the story that seems to be happening in the background amongst some of the conservative judges. I'm a professor. Nerdy is what I do. (laughs) We like nerdy. We like nerdy a lot on this podcast. Uh, Sarah, can you tee us up by giving a quick history of Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the three cases involved in Bostock? Sure. So uh, the basics, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act makes it an unlawful employment practice for an employer to discriminate against any individual because of that individual's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. So, of course, here uh, we're focusing on the because of sex. And when I say unlawful employment practice, that means, you know, a decision made in hiring, firing, uh, pay, promotion, that is because of those categories. So this case actually involves three separate cases that came to the court all uh, on a related issue. Um, two of the cases involved gay men and the third involved a transgender woman. Uh, they all brought lawsuits saying they had been fired uh, in violation of Title VII based on their sex. So the first case, or one of the three, involved Amy Stevens. Uh, Amy worked for a funeral home uh, in the Detroit area. Uh, she had worked there for several years, presenting as a man. Then I think in about 2013, she told her um, that uh, she was coming out as transgender and she was going on a vacation. And when she came back, she would be returning um, as her true self, Amy Stevens. She was fired just a couple weeks after that, uh, and I believe the reason that her employer, the the funeral home, gave at the time was that he wanted to dress as a woman. So she brought the lawsuit, and (laughs) many years later, it reached the the Supreme Court. And in that case, uh, the the Sixth Circuit uh, actually held that the funeral home did discriminate against Ms. Stevens based on her sex and found that that was you know, an unlawful termination under Title VII. Um, the next case, uh, Gerald Bostick, he was a plaintiff in the case versus Clayton County. Um, he had been a child welfare services coordinator who worked for um, the county, Clayton County, and he was fired basically after people in the community and at his workplace learned that he had been um, playing on a softball team for gay people. And uh, the reason given, uh, there are some Factual issues I think we don't really need to get into about sort of he said, she said, but uh, I think the bottom line was that um, he was told that this was unbecoming conduct for, for an employee of, of the county. Third case, Donald Zarda worked as a skydiving instructor um, in New York, and apparently this was very much his passion, had been doing it a long time, by all accounts, great employee. I think that's the, true of all three of these uh, plaintiffs. Um and it came out through, I think, a, a concern or a comment raised by a customer of, of the skydiving company that he was gay. And shortly thereafter, he was also fired. In that case, the Second Circuit uh, also said that uh, Title VII prohibits firing an employee based on their sexual orientation. So the Second Circuit aligned with the Sixth Circuit. I think I didn't mention, but in the Bostic case, the 11th Circuit actually went the opposite way. So we had our uh, circuit split. So how did how did the Supreme Court split on the decision? And how is this unusual for this particular court? So the Supreme Court held six to three 
that uh, discrimination against gay employees or transgender employees is sex discrimination. Title VII uh, says that you can't discriminate against an employee based on their sex, which means that you can't treat similarly situated employees differently on the basis of their sex. Uh, If an employee fires not all of its employees who date women, but only the female employees who date women, it's sex discrimination. It's quite straightforward. Uh, the uh, Gorsuch said, and I'm just quoting from his opinion here, if the employer intentionally relies in part on an individual employee's sex when deciding to discharge the employee, put differently, if changing the employee's sex would have yielded a different choice by the employer, a statutory violation has occurred. So Gorsuch was just following the plain language of the statute, which Gorsuch is, as a matter of legal method, committed to doing. All right. So as the listeners can probably tell, this is the part where we're about to dive into the the, the real nerdy uh, issues. So a lot of us know that it followed the uh, Supreme Court that there are a number of justices who fall into the Scalia camp when it comes to how they should interpret the law. And those justices split two to three uh, in, in this case. And, and that's not unusual. The conservatives don't necessarily vote in a block uh, as much, I think, as the, as the liberal four do at this time. But it is a bit unusual because it seemed like the, everyone had their own interpretation of what uh, Scalia meant by textualism. And, you know, and that was one of his cornerstone uh, ideologies of how the court should read the plain text of the law. So, uh, Andy, do you mind just uh, giving us a good definition of textualism? Absolutely. So since Antonin Scalia wasn't available to be a guest on today's <laughs> podcast, uh, I'm, I will just quote from his writings to tell you what his philosophy of textualism is. So there was an earlier case where the question arose whether same-sex sexual harassment was actionable under Title VII, where somebody was harassed for being insufficiently masculine in the eyes of his fellow co-workers, and Scalia had no trouble saying that that was covered. It might not have been intended by the authors of the statute, but he wrote in that case, I'm quoting, it is ultimately the provisions of our laws rather than the principal concerns of our legislators by which we are governed. He uh, wrote in his last book, a book called Reading Law, that he co-authored with someone named Brian Garner, a student of legal language. In his last book, uh, he wrote, a law's words mean what they conveyed to reasonable people at the time they were written. Uh, And if you're going to talk about the purpose of the text, the purpose should be gathered only from the text itself. He wrote that the judges should reject, I'm quoting here again, judicial speculation about both the drafter's extra-textually derived purposes and the desirability of the fair reading's anticipated consequences. And he said that the reason why this was a good approach was because it made the judges' political preferences irrelevant. He was quite concerned about judges bringing their own preferences into the reading of the law. And so he argued that if you follow his textual method, that, here again, I'm quoting him, will curb, even reverse, 
the tendency of judges to imbue authoritative texts with their own policy preferences. So does this mean that, um, that legislative intent and uh, legislative histories, which I think Marlene and I and, and Sarah and pro- probably you as well, Andy, have, have uh, developed over the years to get the intent of the law, is that irrelevant? Over, over the years, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, Scalia is, uh, Scalia's textualist method is something new in statutory interpretation. Generally, a court would look at a statute, think about the context in which the statute was passed, think about what the specific wrong was that the legislature was trying to remedy, and read the law in light of that. So Scalia's textualism is something new in statutory interpretation. It's not the way in which judges have traditionally read statutes, and I don't agree with it, but... When uh, we wrote our amicus brief in the Supreme Court, there was an amicus brief in this case that was co-authored by me and William Eskridge, who's probably the country's leading authority on statutory interpretation. Uh, He teaches at Yale Law School. And we were self-consciously aiming at the votes of Gorsuch and Roberts because we thought that they were both committed to this textualist approach. We didn't agree with it, but we understood that those were the judges who we were talking to, and we really wanted to hold their feet to the fire and say, look, guys, if this is what you really believe, then this is the direction in which you have to go. And we seem to have hit a nerve, particularly with Justice Kavanaugh in dissent, because Justice Kavanaugh repeatedly (laughs) cites my co-author, Bill Eskridge, and says, this is what Eskridge says. Eskridge is wrong. You don't look at the literal meaning. You look at the meaning in context. The way that Gorsuch responded to that was to say, yes, but Justice Kavanaugh, you haven't told us what you think the ordinary meaning of the law is. You've only said the framers would have been surprised, so we ought to exclude this. That's I mean, that's not textualism. That's uh, sort of, what what can we call it? I have no idea originalism. <laughs> I have no idea what the law means, but I am sure that the framers would have been surprised by this result. So even though I can't tell you what the statute means, we should leave this out. Uh, Sarah, I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, I mean, we're talking at a high level here, Supreme Court uh, justices taking this approach. At the trial level, are you seeing judges who are who are following this type of, you know, I, I just want the plain language of the law here and how it applies to the, these facts? Well, I think uh, where I practice in the Fifth Circuit, uh, it has been less interesting because there's a lot of precedent for courts, courts to go on, you know, indicating traditionally or historically um, sexual orientation or hiring, firing somebody on the basis of, of being transgender has not been protected uh, in the Fifth Circuit. There has been some shift in that, um, but uh, not quite as interesting as, as getting into, you know, what does because of mean in that sense. But we'll see. I'll say one of the problems with textualism as an approach to statutory interpretation is that uh, you can have, you've got a lot more freedom to read words the way you want if the words are taken out of context. 
So I think this was an unusual case because the language was really clear. And so there really was only one way to read the language, unless you went and looked back at uh, the original uh, thought, unenacted thoughts of the drafters. But there was a case a couple of years ago when some lawyers came up with an exceedingly clever way to misread the Obamacare statute that would have completely frustrated its operation and would have produced results that everybody knew would have thwarted the purposes of the statute. And the textualists had a real problem with that. Uh, as it happened, the court split six to three on that one too, and the weird textualist reading was rejected. And the judges who embraced the weird textualist readings were the three judges who were most hostile to Obamacare, just coincidentally. Yeah. And that's, coincidentally. that's what scares me about textualism. It was a way of constraining judges in this case, but for the most part, it lets judges do whatever they want. Now, we had talked about the, the plain language, and I know, and the meaning of the drafters of, of the law. Now, I know uh, one of the things I, I, I have read was that uh, I think it was Justice Alito, like, stapled multiple copies of, of definitions from uh, dictionaries at, at the time of the law's enactment. Um, was that his way of saying, look, Sex means biological sex, not sexual orientation or gender identity. Is that, is that what he was trying to do? That's what he was trying to say, but it didn't have much effect because very early in his opinion, Gorsuch said, I'm happy to stipulate that. Right. So when I uh, say that I'm only going to fire my male employees who date males, uh, I am discriminating on the basis of biological sex. I am following the dictionaries that Justice Alito is citing. So I think that, uh, you know, Justice Alito set up his armies over here when the battle was happening over there. Sarah, do you think there was a better way to approach it? Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, I'm with Andy that it's pretty obvious what the statute says and what it should mean. And even with, uh, you know, Gorsuch's uh, stipulation, we we can get there saying this is this is about biological sex. So it may have been a losing battle for him from the start. I mean, it's interesting when we were talking about Scalia and, and the basis for the ideology to sort of protect from from political influence from getting into the decision. And yet here we are with textualism and, and, you know, the same thing arguably could be happening. There is a big problem with uh, the move that uh, both of the dissenting opinions uh, made, talking about both Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh, both of them wanted to say, well, there was a background culture that was deeply entrenched at the time that the law was enacted. They could not possibly have meant to change that background enactment. The way that Justice Kavanaugh responded to that was by saying, well, any statute that is as far reaching as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is likely to have surprising results. Yeah, I want to expand on that a little bit. If uh, you are looking at any statute that is aiming at broad social transformation, you're going to defeat the purposes of that law 
if you rely on original cultural expectations. Because normally, laws are read to give full effect to their purpose. Laws that aim to counteract prejudice by their nature press against the background culture. And given the tendency of some groups to violently dominate others, there are patterns of exclusion with deep cultural roots in many parts of the world. That's why anti-discrimination law does not only exist in the United States. Lots of countries have anti-discrimination laws because lots of countries have deep cultural tendencies to discriminate against certain groups. If the background culture limits what anti-discrimination law does, then what was enacted as a broad anti-discrimination principle is going to get pruned down to include only its paradigmatic cases, which are tightly encased by the prejudices of the surrounding culture at the time of its enactment. This speaks to another argumentative move, uh, which is to focus on the paradigmatic meaning of the law. Clearly what the framers of the Civil Rights Act had in mind and what uh, the dissenters cite and what people think about when you talk about a prohibition of sex discrimination is refusing to hire a woman in a traditionally male job. That's the paradigm case that you think of. But legal meanings go beyond that. The meanings of words go beyond that. Here's a familiar example. If I talk about a bird you are going to think about an animal that flies. Everybody, you know, when I say the bird, you have a picture in your head of an animal flying across the room. But you're not allowed on that basis to conclude that ostriches and penguins are not birds. They are. When you think about sex discrimination, discrimination against gay people is not the first thing that you think about, but it is sex discrimination. This makes me think back of one of the things that... I kind of gathered from Scalia over the years was he was not really about the constitution being a living document of growing over time. Scalia liked to say, I am in favor of a constitution that is dead, dead, dead. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, good. I, I was afraid maybe I was going to, I had misinterpreted in all these years, um, but it seems almost the way that, it, you know, if you are to read this textualism, that that the meanings do kind of expand over time. Am, am I am I misreading that? And this this didn't seem like dead, dead, dead. You know. Well, once you've got a principle in place, once you've got a rule in place, that rule will apply in unforeseen circumstances. That's true of any rule. Um, well, here's an example. The court settled a long time ago with Justice Scalia's agreement that the protection of freedom of speech meant that government couldn't punish actions if they sent a message that the state didn't like. You can't punish people for doing something because it sends an unpopular message. And Scalia was fine with that, and it had been settled a long time ago. Then the flag-burning cases come to the Supreme Court. Uh, no one who wrote the First Amendment thought about the possibility that someone would burn an American flag as a means of protest. But Scalia had no trouble saying, that's protected by free speech. If free speech means you can't punish somebody for communicating an idea that the state doesn't like, and there's no question that the reason why there were flag desecration laws was because the state was trying to suppress a message of disrespect to the flag, 
Scalia had no trouble saying, I'm just applying the rule that was already there. Okay, so it's not that it's not that far fetched of an idea, then. Um, you know, just so that we have uh, uh, covered all nine justices, did the liberal justices have any anything to say in this whole thing? The liberal judges joined Justice Gorsuch's opinion and did not write separately, and that was unsurprising. Uh, I'm just picturing Ruth Bader Ginsburg over with a big kettle of popcorn, just watching the show. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Justice Ginsburg, of course, is responsible more than anybody else for having the court aggressively protect against sex discrimination. And uh, Justice Ginsburg has said in the past at oral argument that it looked to her like discrimination against gay people was just another form of sex stereotyping. So I will tell you, as authors of the amicus brief, we weren't much worried about the liberals. Uh, we thought that they saw the logic of the argument. Uh, I think that they also saw something that I still have never gotten a good answer to, which is the way in which the prohibition of anti-gay discrimination furthers the purposes of the statute. If the purpose of the statute is at its core to prevent the subordination of women, and we want to know how does the subordination of women operate, one of the things that maintains the gender binary that punishes people for deviating from the roles traditionally assigned to their sex is the stigma against homosexuality. I presume that everybody learned this in junior high school, that if you behave in a way that doesn't stereotypically conform to your sex, anything, if you are a girl who is interested in math or science, you will be labeled as a lesbian. And this is one of the principal ways in which gender conformity is promoted. The relation is about as tight as the relationship between the prohibition of interracial sex and marriage on the one hand and racism on the other. And one of the interesting things about this uh, case, something that Justice Alito tried to respond to, is that the arguments that it's not sex discrimination because both men and women are prohibited from being homosexual is an argument that the Supreme Court uh, in the bad old days embraced as a reason for upholding prohibitions of interracial marriage. There was a case called Pace versus Alabama in 1883, where the court upheld a prohibition on interracial marriage, and it said, look, it's true that blacks aren't allowed to marry whites, but whites aren't allowed to marry blacks either, so there's no race discrimination. And that remained the law for 80 years until the Supreme Court struck down laws against interracial sex and marriage and noticed that it's not possible to punish interracial sex or interracial marriage without noticing what race people are. In fact, if you criminally prosecute people for this, then the race of the defendant is one of the things that the prosecution has to prove to get a conviction. So you've got people going to jail because they were black where they wouldn't go to jail if they could have proved in court that they were white. It's obviously race discrimination. I don't see how this is different.
I think, uh, I mean, that's a great point in here. Uh, you know, if we are going to go with a, a textualist approach to figuring out what the station against individuals, it's not looking at a, a class as a whole. It's not saying, you know, you have to be discriminating against the whole group of women or men in order to violate the statute. It's because of an individual's sex. Uh, and so in, in that right. The statute says that you can't discriminate against an individual. The word individual appears in the language of the statute. Hmm. So I'll, I'll pose this question to, to both of you. Um, is, is this a one-off situation or do you think this uh, split on textualism will continue to split the conservative judges? Uh, this is not the first time that it's happened. Uh, there was that case involving Obamacare that we just talked about where, again, the judges split on the reading of the text. Uh, so it certainly will happen in the future. Part of the problem is that you take words out of context and you are less constrained. There is more that you can do if you don't look at the context of words. So I expect that there will be splits like this in the future. So I know that when decisions like this come down, the, a lot of people, especially in the LGBTQ plus uh, community, are hoping that now they've got a, a new Justice Kennedy out there. Sarah, do they have a new Justice Kennedy? Oh, I, I would say definitely not. Um, you know, uh, uh, while this is a, a major victory, um, a big difference between what Gorsuch did here and Kennedy you know, this, this decision is not about equality. It's not a, a constitutional equal protection case. Um, and so, you know, sort of our, our lofty goals of, of fairness and equality don't, don't come into play here. It really is, what does the statute say? That there, you know, it says because of sex, you can't talk about sexual orientation and gender identity, you know, without some reference to biological sex. Therefore, everybody is protected by the statute, but um, this case was not one in which Gorsuch had to consider whether, you know, principles of equality or, you know, under the First Amendment or religious freedom sort of intersects with protection of, you know, sexual identity. Uh, and so I think I would expect, given his past opinions on uh, issues more in that line, that, uh, you know, in future cases, we, we will not see him become our, our Kennedy. Yeah. Well, Andy, what about Roberts? Uh, it seems like, uh, I mean, obviously people are calling him, I think, the first chief justice in 80 years to be the swing vote of the court. When it comes to big social impact or, or you know, uh, decisions that would have a major impact, and I think yesterday we had the Dreamers, the DACA decision, that all of a sudden Roberts seems to like show up in these cases uh, and find some way, whether it's tax law or some of uh, administrative uh, law uh, that, that suddenly uh, appears is, is Roberts, the sw is he really a swing vote or what, what's, what's kind of his philosophy do you think? I find it very hard to see an overall pattern to Roberts. There clearly are some places where he gets to a result that he feels he wants to get to, and the legal craftsmanship is very poor. 
a place where I would say that that is clearest is in the Voting Rights Act case uh, a few years ago, where he basically gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and opened the door to a great deal of voter suppression, uh, which has uh, now been happening in a cascade, uh, particularly in the states of the former Confederacy, where the Voting Rights Act was intended to apply. That seems to me to be aggressive judicial activism. I will say I uh, hear, well, a couple of things about the Bostock case. One is that his vote wasn't really needed. So uh, you know, he's not casting the deciding vote here. In the DACA case, the uh, case of the Dreamers, he did President Trump a huge favor because uh, he stopped Trump from making this issue really salient right before the election. Let's go back, though, to uh, Gorsuch. It seems to me that uh, Gorsuch does have this in common with Kennedy. Both of them think that gay people are appropriately protected from discrimination uh, under the law. Gorsuch feels that he's statutorily constrained, where I think that Kennedy, it's clearer in the same-sex marriage case that Kennedy just thought it was the right thing. But in his opinion in the same-sex marriage case, Justice Kennedy was quite careful to say, look, there are people who oppose same-sex marriage on decent and honorable religious premises. And Gorsuch had a whole page of his opinion saying, look, there's already in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 really strong protections for religious liberty. So if you want what today seems to be very hard to get through a legislature, protection of gay people from discrimination with really strong religious accommodations, that's already there in Title VII. Uh, Title VII says that the it's not just that uh, religious organizations are allowed to discriminate on the basis of religion, but the statute defines religion to include all aspects of religious observance and practice as well as belief. That's the language of the statute. That probably means that Catholic schools can continue to exclude people who are in same-sex marriages from being on their faculties. Uh, because they can say, well, one aspect of religious practice that we expect of our faculty is to follow the church's teachings about sexual conduct, which means that you can only engage in sexual conduct in heterosexual marriage. And it is pretty clear that Justice Gorsuch would go along with that. So let's get back to the results of the case. And, and what does this mean for the LGBTQ community? Is this, this a total victory or are there loopholes in this decision? It depends on what you think about these religious accommodations. The fact that uh, religious organizations will still be allowed to discriminate on the basis of sexual behavior, which means that they'll be able to discriminate against and actively fire people who are in same-sex relations from one perspective. If you don't like that, it's a loophole. If you think that it is okay for religious people to retreat into their cultural enclaves and live by their own rules in there, then it's not a loophole. It's just an exception to the coverage of the statute in the same way that you can't sue the Catholic Church for discriminating against women when it makes people priests. 
I agree with that entirely. I think thinking about it from an employment lawyer's perspective, how big of a win is this? Uh, you know, I would say it's a huge win for employees of employers who are not religious organizations, religious institutions. Um, in that sense, you know, the, the employer is now going to be, in most respects, unless they assert some sort of religious um, belief uh, defense, going to be you know, bound to uh, allow their workers to work as who they are. Uh, you can't legally, you know, require your your workers to fracture their identity, conceal their identity um, while at work. Uh, I think that's a that's a huge win for the employees who do work for religious entities or uh, for an employer who's going to assert that religious freedom to, to, to discriminate, less of a win. Yeah. Is this, when you say religious entities, are these official religious entities that are tied to a specific church or uh, religion? Or can someone say, as the owner of this with a strong Catholic belief, therefore I can apply my religious views on this. I mean, it's kind of kind of what we've had in the past, right? There are avenues for both still. In other words, this decision did not touch any of those issues. Um, the, the, the Stevens case, the funeral home case, that actually had been an issue uh, in the lower court, but uh, it was dropped uh, here. And so uh, I think like Andy said, um, Gorsuch uh, talks at length about the fact that Anybody afraid that you know this decision is going to impact employers and violate their their religious convictions? Um, that how that issue plays out in the future uh, remains to be seen. Let, let me just the statute uh, by its terms applies to religious associations, corporations, educational institutions, and societies. So that I think would mean clearly that our religiously oriented uh, school or a religious organization or club uh, religiously identified would be exempt from the statute. I don't think that it would apply to a private corporation. So if a private business, let's just call it Hobby Lobby for the sake of argument, <laughs> uh, were to say- Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Chick-fil-A. Uh, Suppose uh, either of those, so, so far as I know, neither of those companies, I should say, has ever been accused of discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation and firing gay employees. I'm not aware of that. Uh, but if they were, they, I don't think, would be able to argue that they are a religious association or educational institution or a society. So they would need the broader protection of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was also cited by Kavanaugh, which says that any federal law includes a religious accommodation unless uh, denying accommodation would be necessary to a compelling state interest. We don't know how Kavanaugh would handle that case. Similar cases have arisen in state courts and those courts have uniformly said that prohibiting discrimination is a compelling state interest. So those claims have lost in the lower courts. But I don't know what a majority of the present Supreme Court would do with that. What about government employees? And I'm, I'm thinking specifically, what about the military? Does this have any effect on the military's, uh, I wouldn't say ban, but the high restrictions uh, against, say, transgender soldiers? 
I don't believe, uh, you know, Sarah's the employer lawyer, so maybe she can correct me on this. I don't believe that the Civil Rights Act applies to federal employees. Title VII does not apply to the military, but the federal government does have to abide by non-discrimination laws. There's just a somewhat different process for it. Uh, okay. uh, Trump's exclusion of transgender troops has been challenged in court for the absence of a reasoned basis. And I haven't read the DACA opinion, but it's my impression that the exclusion of transgender troops has even less of a reasoned basis than the rescinding of DACA. But Trump just announced it, uh, and it happened. And on that point, I issue, you know, how this might apply to uh, intersection with, with, with the government. Uh, in the fall, I think the court is supposed to hear Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. And that is a case, it's a First Amendment uh, case, but uh, involves whether religious organizations have a right uh, based on religious belief to discriminate against same-sex couples. That'll be one to watch out for and see if, if this opinion has any impact on, on the way that goes. A- Andy, you, you writing an amicus on that one? Uh, Not yet. Uh, (laughs) We'll see. Uh, There is a concern that has been raised by people on the right about this decision. They claim that this is the end of separate gender restrooms and locker rooms. Because when you exclude somebody from a restroom or a locker room on the basis of sex, you are discriminating on the basis of sex. So in response to that, I just want to note that Justice Gorsuch says in his opinion that uh, what counts as discrimination is treating a person worse because of sex. I think we should own up to the fact that uh, in the case of sex, uh, with locker rooms and with toilets, we really do have a separate but equal regime in the United States where the presumption is if we tell you to go to this restroom and not that restroom, they are functional equivalents. We are not hurting you. That cannot be said of firing somebody from their job or not giving them a restroom where they can enter safely. That really is treating them worse. And there is this fear of the conservatives of men marching unannounced into women's changing rooms. But actually, uh, I've done some research on this, and there actually is only one man in the United States who has been documented as repeatedly marching unannounced into women's changing rooms. Uh, During the Miss America pageant, there was this man who repeatedly, without any announcement at all, marched into the locker room, the changing rooms of young girls, which is really, I hope left and right can agree, a really loathsome thing to do, to march in on young girls who are at an age where they're unusually self-conscious about their changing bodies. It's really a horrible thing to do. Uh, The man's name was Donald Trump, and he was was one of the sponsors of the Miss America pageant, and uh, as he testified later on, because of his status, he felt that he could do pretty much whatever he wanted to women. Uh, We should keep his example in mind. Uh, I am all in favor of using the law to constrain him and the likes of him. 
I, I think that's the perfect place to end. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> well, well, Andy Koppelman and Sarah Harris, thank you very much for uh, taking some time to talk with us about this case. Appreciate thank you it. both. This has been a really good discussion. I enjoyed it. Thank you. This was great. Thank you. Marlene, it was great listening to both Andy and Sarah discuss this case. That that was fun. Yeah, we were so fortunate to have two different perspectives, the academic versus the practitioner, Mm. as well as having someone who co-authored an amicus brief that was actually referenced by the court. Yeah, that's pretty cool. (laughs) Hey, um, you know, I was just thinking about this. Well, one, I'm not sure if we mentioned it in, in the interview, but even Justice Kavanaugh kind of tipped his hat to the LGBTQ community, um, congratulating them on a victory and especially how hard the lawyers have fought to uh, extend rights. Uh, you know, it's just I, I think this is finally the, the law catching up to our culture. And it's a it's a good thing. But it as with most things. You gotta, you gotta protect it. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Uh, congratulations. But and and it was hard fought. But uh, you know, also don't let your guard down. No. Yeah, it's about time. Before we go, we want to remind listeners to take the time to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rate and review us as well. If you have comments about today's show or suggestions for a future show, you can reach us on Twitter at at M or at Glambert, or you can call the Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7270, or email us at geekandreviewpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSicca. Thank you very much, Jerry. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene. See you later. Stay safe. Bye.